Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, this one might stir the pot. We've got two publishers with plenty of pedigree heading in two very different directions, but with views on how the significant challenges that are coming at the fourth estate might play out. The Guardian's managing director, Dan Stinton, is leaving the one-time challenger masthead to run a tech startup, Health Engine, and he's joined on the mics by Chris Jans, the former Fairfax and Nine publishing boss who's caused just a little angst amongst his old publishing peers and competitors with a mysterious venture capital-backed media venture called Sire. Now, Chris is hiring lots of experienced journos to fill some large gaps that TCs have been opening up because of broad audience frustration with established mastheads. So from sinking public trust levels in media to new business models, the dangers and even perhaps delusion of programmatic advertising, and even Google, we're about to hear some contrarian media worldviews, and I'm looking forward to it. Welcome, Dan and Chris. Dan Stinton, we might start with you, and let's start with Chris Jans, shall we? The, the Guardian's just had its 10th birthday, I think, um, and at the time of launch, uh, it was arguing there was a gap in the market not being covered by established news media mastheads. Uh, it's exactly Chris Jan's argument uh, today with Sire and whatever he's building. We, but this gap, Dan, um, what was it for The Guardian 10 years ago? I mean, you have to remember what the media landscape was like 10 years ago when The Guardian launched. I mean, I think it's still to a certain extent true today, but uh, at that stage, you know, the Fairfax Mastheads, I think Chris was in charge of them uh, back then, or perhaps it was it was Team Blue at that point. But the Fairfax Mastheads were, were obviously, I think I think it's fair to say, still grappling with, you know, the impact of a loss of classified revenue. And, and to a certain extent, I think they were in retreat. They're, they're much stronger now, but I think back then they were in a much weakened position. And look, News Corp was too, but was probably more dominant at that point. And that just left a really, really big gap for a, a proudly progressive masthead like The Guardian to, to come in and launch. And look, to a certain extent, I think that that's still the case now. The now nine mastheads have, you know, are more centrist, I think, than they were. News Corp is still doing what News Corp does. And, and that's left a, that a space. I'll, I'll let others comment on that, Paul. But um, and so that left a gap for us to um uh, to launch a proudly progressive masthead. And also, look, I mean, I think the other thing I, I would say is is the Guardian is genuinely independent in the sense that you know we are we are owned by the Scott Trust. All of our profits are reinvested back into journalism, and so the kind of journalism that the Guardian does, I think, is unique, um, irrespective of the fact that it's pro- from a progressive standpoint. I think the kind of independent journalism that we do. Uh, is really important and was much needed in Australia. So that was the gap we saw then. I think to a certain extent, it, it um, it's still the case today. Your audience in Australia when you launched ten years ago to what it is now. What are we talking about? Yeah, we launched with about a million uh, Australians reading us at that point, and that was largely reading you know content that was produced out of out of London. We now average about seven or eight million Australians reading us every month. That makes us anywhere from fourth to sixth in the news rankings, depending on how things go. We got up to you know about twelve and a half million uh, at the height of the pandemic, so we had about half of Australia uh, reading us at that point. Yeah, so you know, uh, I would argue that's a pretty successful run, going from a million to uh, to getting into the top five most uh, most months, and um, and I think we've had a pretty big impact. What's changed about the product at all? Or when I say product, I know my uh, journalistic peers will hate that. So I should say, what's changed about <laughs> what the Guardian does in Australia? Uh, look, I'll talk about it from 
the perspective of journalism, which I guess is is probably the most obvious uh, to everyone reading us. And look, when we launched, you know, we launched with a team of about forty people, of which only only half of those were journalists, right? So obviously that meant we weren't able to do a lot of the things that we would have liked to have done. And really, the strategy us for us has been pretty simple. It's like as we've grown, we have we have effectively launched um, or hired more journalists in different verticals. So you know, when we started, uh, Kath Viner, who was our our founding editor at the time, now our global editor in chief very focused on the environment, on politics, on Indigenous affairs. They remain core focuses for us now, but we've really bolstered the size of our environmental team. We've hired uh, business reporters, we've hired sports reporters, um, you know, we've, we've slowly broadened the journalism that we do. The point to make here, Paul, is that that's been a different approach to what some of the other publishers that launched at about that time uh, the approach that they took, which was that they hired a huge number of journalists and sort of worried about the profits later. That was never the Guardian's way. We, we basically grew slowly and as our revenue grew, we we increased the size of the newsroom and that, that remains the focus today and I suspect it will remain the focus after my departure as well. The frustration of that means, you know, we would love to have a newsroom three times the size. Uh, I mean, our newsroom now is still over 100 people, so it's it's starting to to get some weight to it. But, you know, there's still a huge number of verticals that we would like to do a lot more in that we haven't had the opportunity to do yet. But, you know, it's been a sustainable model. It's it's meant that we've grown sustainably. Profits have been maintained and we're in a really strong financial position. Circa 200 people, what, $40, $50 million in re- revenue. Dan, what is The Guardian now in Australia? Yeah, that's about right. That's about right. Yep, just under 200. Yeah, about just under 50 million rev. Chris, where were you when the Guardian launched? We'll get to that. But more importantly, there's been much speculative trading going on in uh, in publishing uh, in, in, in amongst the, the, your old mastheads, actually, with what you're up to. I'm really interested in why you think there's an opportunity to compete with the media establishment. And you were once that not long ago, Chris Jans. No, not that long ago at all. Look, it, it's pretty simple, Paul. We think that there's an audience opportunity and we also believe in the business of journalism. That's simple, and that's it. That's the only answer I get, Chris Jones. But there is, there's a lot of uh, audience out there, and there's a lot of journalists out there. So, why? What are you going to be doing differently? Why is there an opportunity to do whatever it is Sire is going to do? And we'll hopefully get to a bit of that. Maybe we start with the first publication that we're going to be launching, and it's really focused on business, politics, and power. And if right. you look at the Australian business community, it's changed markedly over the last decade. Millennials have grown up; uh, they're now in the C-suite, they're in the boardroom. They're making significant decisions. They're leading change. At the same time, startups have grown up, and there are multiple examples of Australian startup businesses posting multi-billion dollar valuations, leading the charge around the world, competing at scale. And we think that there's an opportunity for a digitally native, future-facing publication that speaks to that generation of commercial leaders. And it plays in the, in the way that we'll go about doing that, plays to a lot of the broader th- themes that we believe are happening in media. The interesting thing here, though, Chris, is um, that is being covered in some way by mainstream now, but you think that there is sort of an underlying, an under underbelly of frustration or something missing in the market by audiences, and you're going to do it differently. And I, what you mean by that? Well, uh, up front, I'd say there is a lot of a great deal of excellent journalism happening in newsrooms around the country, but there's no denying that news media has a trust problem. And survey no. after survey after survey is telling us that that problem's getting worse. And if you look at the broad themes, readers are telling us they're concerned about proprietorial influence, they're worried about concentration of ownership. Media is even more concentrated than it was when The Guardian launched 
a decade ago. Some publications, they blend gossip, opinion, partisan coverage, clickbait, alongside award-winning journalism, and sometimes readers can't tell the difference. And thirdly, I'd say at a time that we're really sensitive to cyber attacks and the sharing of personal information, some are bragging about the billions of data points that they collect on people and how they, they track and then sell against that data. So it's understandable how we got here and how that we mm. do have a trust issue in media. And you can either bury your head in the sand and pretend that it's not happening, or you can address it. And readers are telling us that they want it addressed. We believe it's commercially right to address it. So in the way that we go about building both the business and our journalism, trust will be at the core of what we do. And that's not to say it's not at the core of, of the broader industry, but there are those pockets that have led to the concerns that people have. Data shows quite concerning levels of trust towards journalists. I mean, in fact, the, the lowest trust you can actually find uh, in Australia goes to the journos these days. Dan Stinton, you did a campaign, I think you launched it, was it last year, um, which is on trust. And you did your own sort of survey that sort of said to some of the points that Chris talked about. What's your sense on trust before we go a bit further into the detail? Media trust, that is. We're not immune to the things that Chris was just talking about, right? Um, but one of the things I've been encouraged by is trust in the media really returned quite substantially during the pandemic when people realised, you know, the need for fact-based information was really important just so that they could get about their daily lives, right? It became front and central, front and centre for, for most people. And for The Guardian, at least, we've seen that the level of trust with our audience has maintained at a pretty high level. It's declined from the peaks that it was, you know, when there were daily press conferences with all the premiers, but it hasn't gone back to uh, where it was previously. You know, I think to a certain extent, the pandemic was good for news media. I mean, there were obviously, you wouldn't want to have it happen again, clearly, um, just in case there's any confusion about that. But it was it was good because it reminded people of the importance of real journalism and fact-based journalism. And, and obviously, that's been slipping as everybody has become a publisher on social media these days. So, look, we're actually encouraged. and But like Chris, I think it's it's really tenuous, right? You have to make sure that in the kind of journalism that you are doing, that you are, I mean, it seems silly to say it, but it, it is worth reminding uh, people that you have to do it, you know, based on the facts and you have to ensure that you also explain your craft a little bit and how you go about doing the journalism that you do. Um, and that's been a focus for our editor, Lenore, uh, and our focus for our newsroom. And, and I think it's working well for us. I think we have a really strong relationship with our readers and it's a real focus of us uh, for us of making sure that that continues. This is the great conundrum for me because to Dan's point, we we saw all the data through COVID. There was a race back, a flight back to uh, some of the, the mainstream mastheads uh, through COVID. And people were sometimes, I think Dan talks about sometimes 15 visits a day in some cases by some people, you know, just literally updates and so forth. That trust did, did rise. But we do see even in this year's Edelman uh, Monitor uh, Trust Barometer, things like 51% of people say journalists are divisive force who exploit and intensify our differences, and in fact, only second to the rich and powerful. Um, now, that is not what journos, including myself, uh, like to think and hear about ourselves. What's happening? What has happened about at least that perception in them amongst the people? Yeah, and I think we need to be cautious of COVID papering over some of the cracks of what has been a longer-term trend. Obviously, people did, you know, news media businesses did really well both from an audience perspective and commercially through the COVID period, but it doesn't necessarily reflect what's been going on more broadly. And one of the things that we've found as we've been hiring journalists for our new venture 
is that journalists themselves are really concerned about some of the broader themes that are happening in news media and in their newsrooms. They want to be producing. There isn't a journalist out there that doesn't want to be producing accurate information, getting it right, free from bias. But those pressures do exist in newsrooms today, either because that's part of the business model for those newsrooms or because they're trying to chase mass audience at scale. I think it's, a, it's, it's an issue that is broadly recognised by the media community. And I think um, publicly recognising it is an important step in ensuring that we have quality journalism sustaining itself for, for many years to come. Right. And it's buried in the sand, Chris, on this across the sector? Undoubtedly. On the trust issue? Undoubtedly. I think um, it's not something that is broadly spoken about in a lot of media businesses in this country. But at a time when we're asking people to pay for our journalism, it's critically important that they trust the sources and value the sources of information that they're getting. On that point, I mean, many people have made this point hundreds of times before, right? So it's no great insight. But, you know, obviously the best thing about the internet is that everyone became a publisher and the worst thing about the internet is that anyone became a publisher, right? And... You know, what you see on social media, the post you see on social media, takes up the same amount of real estate on your phone or computer screen as, as a post from The Guardian or The Sydney Morning Herald or anyone else, right? What we've really focused on doing, and I think Catherine Murphy, our political editor, is a really good example of this, is not just explaining, uh, not just doing the journalism, which is one point, but also explaining what goes on in order to get the story and where the insights are coming from and those sorts of things. The more I think that our profession does that, the better it will be. I think this is a trend which is happening internationally as well. And I think this is going to become increasingly important. You know, Again, probably an obvious point, but as the amount of content that is produced from AI uh, explodes, the kind of journalism that you know, reputable mastheads do is going to become more and more important. And in order for there to be trust in that journalism, I think we have to remind people that journalism is a craft and it requires you know, speaking to multiple sources and fact-checking, and it doesn't require just spouting opinions on social media like so many individuals are doing. And so my hope is that if we continue to go down this path of both doing the good journalism and explaining how we do it, that trust in the masters that do that will will hopefully increase. And hopefully that will be a good thing for, um, you know, society as a whole at the risk of getting carried away and, and democracy more broadly. Chris Jens, do you give us a hypothetical example of an approach, a tone, an angle, whatever it is that you think is contributing to this uh, mistrust that is towards media. So what builds on this? How does it get there? I think it's as simple as you visit some news websites today and blended, you have clickbait, you have opinion, you have sensationalism, you have stories that are published with partisan bias, and you have great journalism. And it's all blended in in certain news websites, and it isn't clear to the average reader what's different about each story. So while for journalists, it may be very clear that that story has been written that way because there is that agenda or that influence or that campaign that's going on. To the average reader, it's not. And I think that's something that we come across every day. And, you know, we need to be really careful not to tar the whole market with this. I'm, I'm not having a shot mm. at journalists in the market. There is bloody excellent journalism that happens in Australia every day. But some of the business models of the publications that we do have have changed over time and they have encouraged effectively bringing audience through the door for reasons that aren't necessarily pure. This first publication you're talking about, where are you at with your talent and what will it look like? Will it read the same as everything else we've seen 
in the market or is it going to be tonally different and directionally different? I think there, there will be significant tonal, directional and, and format differences to what we see out there today. We're not looking to launch yet another news website. It's probably a little bit ahead of the curve to give too much away on that front now, but it will not be a website where you remove the masthead and could replace it with any other masthead in, in the right. country. And you know, will, you we, do, will you cover news? Because that's often where some tension lies, isn't it, is in that fast news cycle. Will you be on that? We'll absolutely cover news. Right. Um, but, but I think also a key element for us is providing broader insight and perspective on the why and the why this matters and what happens next. Chris, I'm, I'm really interested, you know, if I think about maybe 10 years ago, the Digirati were piling in on the fact that old world legacy media companies and publishers were dead and the digital pure plays were the, were the game changers and this is where it all needed to go. And then what we see fast forward eight years, we've seen the BuzzFeeds, the Huffington Post, the uh, Vices, uh, all those digital pure plays hitting big, big walls, uh, even though they were destined to be the new great ones. So what does that say about the digital media pure play and what does it say about um, your viability? So the first thing I'd say is there's room for everyone. There doesn't need to be just new players or just existing players. There is plenty of room in the market for more voices. And I think more voices and more journalists being employed is only a good thing. If we talk to the digital business models, if, if you look at the likes of Huffington Post and BuzzFeed, they're 15 to 20-year-old businesses today. And mm. you think about how quickly the world has changed and how much things have evolved when it comes to, to digital over the last couple of decades, it's, it's pretty immense. And I think at a point in time, those mass-scale advertising-only businesses that were driven by search and social made a lot of sense. They didn't necessarily evolve over time to match the changes that have happened in digital since. And I look at the new wave of publishers, they're, they're very different. The likes of the information, Puck, Axios, Semaphore, and within those publications, they all have quite significant differences in their business models. But the one thing they have in common is they're not building their businesses around clickbait or search and social scale. They're building their businesses around great quality journalism. And that's, that's where we're drawing our inspiration, is you can actually genuinely build great digital businesses around quality journalism. They all did good stuff, though. You talked about, um, you talk about quality journalism. Some of that stuff was not crap, and yet they are still finding themselves today in, in, in Struggle Street commercially. And this is the perfect time for the garbage truck to be directly outside, mate. Some <laughs> hear I, can't, it, we, but... I can't hear it. Can you hear it, Dan? I can't hear it. No. It's, no. it's about to disappear. <laughs> All of those businesses and their newsrooms did produce good journalism in pockets, but the core of the business model was about scale, and it was about mm. scale from search and social. And if you're getting your audience from Facebook, there's a couple of issues. One is you're dependent then on algorithms of third parties that can change over time, and your business priorities and your journalistic priorities are dictated by how those platforms want to do business. That isn't necessarily sustainable or a good thing. And the other is you need to get as many eyeballs on the, your pages as possible and build scale because every ad impression drives revenue. That, I think, was a great model 15 years ago. There are new emerging and different models today that aren't funded by search and social-driven traffic that turns into advertising eyeballs. And we're talking there clearly subscriptions and 
what happens after that, Chris? Well, I, I think any business needs to evolve and develop over time. And we're operating in an industry that absolutely doesn't stand still. So at this moment in time, I think subscriptions are a tremendous business opportunity. You only need to look at the public data out there of Australian media businesses. Media is is a great business. And subscription-driven businesses at this point in time, I, th- I think, are fantastic because they also drive the right journalistic outcomes. Producing, If you produce great quality journalism that people are willing to pay for, they'll subscribe and in turn you have more money to invest in your newsrooms. And, and let's be clear on this. I mean, at least in your first venture that you're launching, Chris, you, you're not looking for a scaled play here. You're not looking for even, you know, hundreds of thousands of subscribers, at least. We might be talking, what, tens of thousands is, is something where you can make something work viably commercially? What I'd say is we're looking to build the right audience and the right audience for a publication that is built around business is not a scale audience. Dan, uh, Stinton, you probably share some views on this uh, in and around the scaled play. Obviously, The Guardian has is an ad-funded model, but you've also got donations, and that's been a surprise. I think you've said that surprises you just how you know how that's kicked. Uh, you don't do subscriptions, or I think there's something happening there, but what you are certainly not a fan of is joining the programmatic advertising brigade and playing in those big, cheap, low CPM, low cost per thousand ad plays. You've made some changes there, and so we'll, we'll maybe detail some of your thoughts, but your initial thinking on what Chris is talking about in terms of the problems with digital players going for scale and an ad-funded scale model is uh, dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I've got much more to add other than that worked for a time and it doesn't anymore, right? I mean, it, it worked when you could rely on Facebook in particular, but Google as well, sending you a huge amount of traffic. You know, when they changed their algorithms, obviously that had a pretty profound impact on a lot of those businesses, BuzzFeed and Vice in particular, it also impacted on the kind of journalism that you did, right? Because you you wanted to do the kind of journalism that was going to get as many clicks as possible. And that made the quality of the journalism that you do go down, you know, because you, you wanted the clickbait headlines, you wanted the kind of stuff that was going to Because uh, the advertising-funded model rewarded scale. That's right. I mean, look, and that was a great business when... I mean, when I started in digital, we were getting complaining about $30 CPMs. I would love to be complaining about $30 CPMs again. I mean, it's like it's 10% of that now, you know, programmatically or less sometimes. So, you know, it, it just doesn't, when that was the mechanics of the industry, it made perfect sense to go after scale because there was enough revenue and advertising revenue behind it. That is just not the world we live in now. The, the yield that you earn from programmatic is much lower. The dominance of the platforms is much higher. Uh, and also they've changed their algorithms and therefore they're, they're less reliable partners in terms of sending traffic. So if you want to succeed in media these days, in my view, uh, and obviously I'm pretty biased by my experience at The Guardian, but you need to have this kind of boring but diversified um, revenue model, which is both driven by consumer revenue, by advertising, by licensing, by events, by whatever else sort of comes your way. But there's if you are just reliant on one thing, I think that what the last few years has shown us, particularly with the advertising-driven model of, of BuzzFeed and Vice, is that if you're just reliant on one uh, revenue stream, as the internet evolves and as consumer beha- behaviour evolves online, you're going to get caught out, right? So you, you just need to really have a, have a diversified sort of share of revenue. And we can talk about that. You know, I'm happy to talk about what I think is happening with advertising too, but I think the, the starting principle has to be don't just rely on one thing because consumer trends change too quickly. I do want to capture your thoughts on what The Guardian's mix in the advertising revenue side is looking like. You've 
slashed quite considerably your reliance on programmatic advertising, at least in what we know as the open exchanges, right? That's that real-time bidding stock market-like, I need an audience, I'm going to pay for it, they bid, as opposed to sort of doing direct digital deals with publishers. So we're talking now about the open exchanges. You slashed your reliance on that, what, from 50% to 10 or what's, what's what's the ratios? Yeah, that's right. I mean, so when I started at The Guardian five years ago, about half of our advertising revenue was coming from uh, the open marketplace, so from real-time bidding. And now that's down at about 10%. Now, to be clear, we, we still absolutely support and are all for the, the efficiencies that come with, with digital advertising, but we're primarily doing that through PMPs or programmatic guaranteed direct buyers. So what that means is we've gone back to a fairly old-fashioned uh, advertising model, um, advertising sales model, where we now, 90% of our advertising revenue comes from uh, a result of a conversation with someone on our sales team. And it's also meant that the kind of advertisers that we are targeting, I would argue that they're much higher quality now as well. We're doing brand advertising as opposed to the DR type advertising, which is sort of dominates the, the open marketplace. Direct and I think that yeah. really suits publishers, right? So I've said this before, but if you... If you just take a step back and you look at what has happened with the digital advertising over the last decade or so, obviously consumer data, to touch on the point that Chris made earlier, consumer data has become a really important part of that. And as privacy regulations go up uh, in Australia and around the world, you know the, the value of first-party data for targeting goes up as well. I, mean, I think what publishers have to realise is we're never going to have the first-party data of a Google or a Facebook, which reach pretty much everywhere, every Australian. But what Google and Facebook lack is the really strong affinity with the brand that certainly the audience of The Guardian and other news heads have. And that just really suits brand advertising. So for us, we've gone away from that DR end of the market, more towards the premium uh, end of the market that are interested in brand advertising. Uh, and we do that with a sales team going and speaking to clients and really understanding exactly what their objectives are and then tailoring a campaign solution to them, which which is going to be bespoke and will meet their their campaign objectives. And it's worked really well for us. And, you know, advertising is uh, about 45% of our revenue. I would make the point, though, it's actually growing faster than consumer revenue uh, for us now. And my commercial director, Mason, is on a mission to make that uh, more than 50% uh, at some stage uh, in the next year or two. So, you know, and I think we'll get there because there's what we've realized is that brand advertising is particularly well suited to news mastheads. It also, right. just to build on that, I, I think there's infection here too because it doesn't help build trust when you're reminded through 12 ad slots on a page that you've been looking for new shoes and the publisher knows you've been looking for new shoes. Yes, and or in my case, I dress and I promise you I haven't been looking at, at, at dress stores, but that's what I get <laughs> delivered sometimes. Maybe it's certain more. Entirely right. And, uh, you know, there are issues with this with the privacy law reforms. Undoubtedly, there are specific issues around journalism. But if you look more broadly about the ability to opt out of targeted advertising that could lead to a return of valuing context that really is good for publishers and I think also is is good for commercial partners. Yeah, yeah. well, it's back to the future like, like uh, Dan said earlier. But Chris, we have to ask the question though, you did do the deal at Fairfax with Google for on exactly the sort of stuff that we're now saying is not flash for publishers. So please explain as some politician might sometimes say. <laughs> I think everything that you do in the media business is in response to the situation that you're in at the time. And at the time, we were facing a declining digital advertising model, real issues with our digital advertising business, and we were looking to build a subscription business. And 
there was an agreement to be had that made a lot of sense for a commercial partner in Google and made a lot of sense for us as a business and allowed us to focus on building a digital subscription business. So if I had my time again, um, that was the deal of a career. I'd absolutely do it. Because it was so good, right? I mean, I know you won't go to the details, but I can speculate in a credible way because I don't want to be one of those journos doing tabloid. But the notion there of why you did that deal with Google at Fairfax uh, Publishing, Chris, was that the Google number, what it guaranteed to Fairfax was so good that you you couldn't say no. That's essentially it. Can you tell me where I'm right or wrong? I can let you speculate, but there were a number of decisions made over my time at Fairfax that led to better business results year after year, while also allowing us to invest more and more in journalism and the newsrooms were were able to grow. So that was one of many agreements, I think, during that time that allowed us to Mm. grow and build the business and focus on what's important, which is great journalism. So Dan, Chris talked about, you know, allowing uh, that Google deal with Fairfax, which was, I don't know, was it three or four years? And there was a guaranteed level of revenue, whether Google took over the sales and wrote that or not, it was going to pay Fairfax a check. But Chris said that that allowed Fairfax to start building out sort of consumer revenues, Dan, and that was part of the subscription stuff. You haven't gone there. You've gone to donations, but surprisingly, it's really bloody working, right? So there's quite significant contribution uh, going on. It's just voluntary. Yeah, and look, it's been hugely successful for us, right? So the Guardian launched the reader revenue model or, con- or consumer contributions, we've, we've termed it, about seven or eight years ago. It's just absolutely taken off for us. And, you know, for a number of years there, it was growing, you know, anywhere from 30 to 50% year on year. It's obviously slowed now as it has for every publisher around the world as we've come out of COVID, but it is still growing strongly for us. It is still more than half of our revenue. And, you know, it's fundamentally changed the prospects for news publishing. If consumers hadn't been prepared to come and pay for news, then this would be a much a much more depressing conversation, right? So that combination of consumer revenue and advertising uh, and licensing, which we'll probably get to in a second, is really what has made news sustainable now. And there was, you know, 10 years ago, that was a real question, wasn't it, about whether or not the traditional legacy news publishers were actually going to survive in this digital age. And what we've learned now is not only we're going to survive, but we're going to thrive. Our model is... You know, we are proudly want our journalism to be open and available to all, including those that can't afford it. So we don't have a paywall and we rely on consumers making voluntary contributions uh, to us if they believe in that cause. And that's actually one of the main reasons that that our readers tell us that they support us actually is because they, they not only believe in our journalism, but they want to make sure that it does remain open and available to all because they, they see it as a force for good in the world. So that's one part of it. But what we are starting to experiment now is asking consumers to pay for curation. So the best example of this is we just launched a paywall on our mobile app. It's got a pretty high threshold at the moment. We're experimenting with that. But over time, while I think it's uh, very unlikely that we'll ever charge for our journalism on the web, some of those elements of curation, which are hugely valuable for uh, our really engaged readers, are something that we're asking them to pay for and actually take out a subscription. It's already working pretty well, and I think it's going to be becoming a much bigger part of our, our sort of broad reader revenue commercial model over time, and that will fund, uh, allow us to do the kind of journals that we want to keep doing. Define curation, though, in this context of a paid subscription. What, what are you curating for them, and is that the machines curating, or is it an editorial team pulling together stuff? What, what does curation mean? Uh, look, it's a bit of both, but it's mostly, I mean, in terms of what our editors decide is, you know, in, in the app, in the mobile app, for example, which is where we've launched this paywall, you know, the, the top stories that are featured there are 
curated by our editors. And, you know, there's obviously some recommendations that come off the back of different articles. So there is some algorithmic uh, recommendations as well, but primarily our editors are deciding the news that our readers should see. And I think that's really important, by the way, because, you know, if you go to a model, which I think a few publishers have experimented with, where you're just reliant on, you know, the machines to effectively tell you what's important, you end up in this race to the gutter which means the kind of journalism that gets the most clicks is the, the kind of journalism that gets prioritised at the top. And, you know, I think without naming publishers, you can sort of see the, what the result of that is on, on some of our, our competitor sites. That's not what we do. It's a short-term sugar hit from a commercial point of view, but in the long term, that's not something that consumers are, you know, consumers will not pay for Kim Kardashian's latest outfit or latest scandal uh, in the long term. It's just not a business model. And so the subscriptions are, what's the take-up on that that you've done so far? How many? We've got about 150,000 recurring supporters in Australia. So people that either give us a monthly contribution or a digital subscription. And over time, as we're experimenting more and more with this subscription side of things on the margins, I, my anticipation is that the subscription side will, will grow to be a more meaningful part of that. I, I would make the point, by the way, that seems like a completely different model to you know what Fairfax or, or sorry, Nine or, or News Corp do. It's actually not, though, if you actually drill down to it, that the motivation, that the primary motivation that people have, and I, I'm sure this is the case with the other publishers, is that they believe in our journalism. There's a small proportion of the audience where it's purely transactional. They want to read an article that's behind a paywall and they pay for it. But the vast majority of the audience, I suspect, believe in the journalism and therefore want to support and want to support the masthead. I mean, you see this, by the way, in the New York Times, in their advertising campaigns that they do as well when they talk to their audience. They, they don't talk about you can get all this suite of of content, they talk about the fact that if you believe in our journalism, the best way you can support it is by taking out a subscription. So it's not that different at The Guardian, by the way. Our, our model has just been hugely successful because we're also owned by the Scott Trust as well, right? We've been we've been able to have this open open model, but I think um, it's not as different as it might appear. Chris, you're not going to do advertising at all, I don't think, right? You might do some commercial partnerships, perhaps, or commercial something, but you're not going to you're not relying on ads at all. Is that if I got that right? In much the same way that Dan was talking about before, I think. There is a lack of sustainability in that model, and it delivers perverse incentives to the business to produce journalism that isn't worth paying for. So mm. we're committed to delivering journalism worth paying for. Does that mean that there won't be commercial messages on our property? No. We'll absolutely have, have commercial partners in place. Just but it'll look differently. Typically, it'll be different. Are you having those conversations now with, with potential partners? Yes. And uh, what are they, what is their response? What are those commercial partners' response to whatever you're pitching to them? Are they nodding with furious agreement or how's that sell going? I think there's a real appetite in the market to do things differently. And there are broad themes happening in the broader advertising market that people are concerned about that do relate to trust and relate to commoditization and the right environment that our proposition really puts at the fore. So, Yes, there, there are some great conversations happening. You haven't announced the name yet. It won't be Sire. It'll be something different. The Sire is the holding company or the parent company, if you like. So these, all these products that you have will have their own branding or own names. Yes, that's right. And we have. And, and how many yet. should we expect in the next 12 months to two years? Will, you, will it be on a handful or something that you do? I think right now we're focusing on one. So, right. And, you know, not trying to boil the ocean here. Let's get... Let's get where we start. Okay, well, yes. And you've been out hiring or you've been out, out, yes, you've been out hiring. How many journos do you need and what's the team look like? So we've got about 20 on board now and they're from a really broad range of publications 
here and also some Aussies returning home. The one thing that I'd say is consistent in the message that we're receiving is that people are looking for a publication where they can do their best work and without the restrictions that do exist in some of the other publishing houses in market. And we have some journalists returning to journalism with that in mind as well. So it's, yeah, it's right. a really broad mix and I'm really excited to, to unveil the team. We'll be doing that at some point in the future. Poaching. So there's, you've, there's been a few claims that you've been out and about poaching the establishment's uh, key talent. Chris, I think when I asked you this the other day, you said, actually, no, we put job ads up and people apply. Is essentially, you've approached some clearly, but not the majority. It's very old school. Like I, I think the broad principle across our business, none of it's rocket science, but we have gone down the very old school path of putting up job ads. People have applied for them. We've interviewed them and we've made them offers. Um, and if you look at our newsroom team, there is one person in that entire team that didn't go through that process, and that was the first hire. Don McDilling, right, from, from the right. City Morning Herald, right. Okay, that's the only one where there was a direct approach from you to sort of poach. The rest of it is on the candidate side initiative. That's right. And, and, and that's been important because we're not looking necessarily for people to do exactly the same work that they're doing today. Mm. We're looking for that, their broader approach and attitude. And the best way to express that is through an application. The other notion of media and media groups feeling the need to compete with the digital platforms on data and targeting and segmentation and tracking and all those things that go on that simply just to keep pace in an advertise, scaled advertising market, the, the, buy, the buy side, dem- the advertisers are demanding that or wanting that and reward it. Both of you, maybe Chris first, you were in the thick of that at nine. You think that's a bit uh, fractured, that approach? You're not, you're not convinced? Well, my view is it's playing in a game that has been won by Google and Meta. They have such incredible size and scale and impact and the ability based on that size and scale to set price. So if you're playing a game that doesn't value context, doesn't value trust, doesn't value the investment that your organisation makes in quality information, then you're playing someone else's game and aren't necessarily taking control of your own destiny. Um, if you had I your time they, again then, Chris, at, Fair, at, at nine in Fairfax, or if you knew what you knew now, would you be a supporter of both? What Nine and News Corp, everyone's doing it. They're building logged-in databases, uh, people that they can see who's reading and what, where they are. You wouldn't follow that strategy again if you were you know, having another crack? I don't think it is the long-term solution to funding news media. And mm. I think they're are going to be changes imposed on the industry around targeted advertising and the ability to opt out. If your one bet is data-driven advertising and and building a pool that is 100% of all Australians 15 plus in the country, it's not a point of differentiation. The point of differentiation for these organisations is context and trust. Dan, your take? Yeah, I mean, look, I agree, obviously. that's And that's why we've reduced our reliance on on the open marketplace as well. And I think, you know, you, you play to your strengths and the strengths of The Guardian and trusted news publishers broadly is is affinity and context and all the things that Chris mentioned. You know, I also think we have to be alive to the fact that there is some pretty significant privacy reform coming, right? And that's going to have an impact on the industry. And look, to a certain extent, I don't think the industry in the whole, on the whole, has really realised that the way that we have done business by trying to hoover up as much consumer data as we possibly can 
and segmented audience is sustainable in the the medium to long term. I think there are going to be restrictions placed on that. So I think we need to start by acknowledging the fact that Australia's privacy regime is inadequate, right? It has not kept pace with the rest of the world. And there's just an imperative for us to fix that, by the way. If we don't come up to adequacy with GDPR, it's going to start impacting on things like free trade agreements with with Europe and, and the US, right? So this has to change. And I think the other thing that's happened is, you know, I've heard for years that consumers don't care about privacy. I just don't know if that's true anymore. You know, the more data breaches there are, the more that consumers care and the more that people are asking the question around what is what data is being collected and, and are being uncomfortable with, with what's happening. So I think that's the starting position that we, we have to just accept that what the way we've done business is, is going to have to change. Now, the issue we've got is that at the moment with what is being proposed by the government, there's not really a huge difference between tracking or targeted advertising is broadly defined as you know it can be anything from tracking someone's every movement including their address and you know the fact that they frequent a fertility clinic and anything else by you know tracking where they go from their use of the mobile from your use of a mobile operating system or uh, a mapping application or something similar I, i mean that is class at the moment as the same as targeting an advertisement to someone who lives in surrey hills and those two things are obviously very different. One of them has consumer harm uh, or the potential for consumer harm and one doesn't. And I think that what I'm hoping that we get to at the end of all this is a regime which allows for sensible targeting because, you know, down to a postcode level because the, the opportunity for harm there is quite small, but restricts some of the really invasive data practices where, you know, the term surveillance is actually appropriate. You know, we're following someone around uh, and following their every movement is genuinely surveillance and, and consumers are uncomfortable with that, right? So, that shouldn't be allowed even with consent, right? That should just be outlawed. And the last point I'll make on this is a concept I've been banging on about for years. Uh, no one seems to listen, but let me say it one more time with feeling. I think that needs to be, t- needs to be um, matched with purpose limitations, right? So you shouldn't be able to, for example, track someone's every movement because you control a mobile operating system and use that to sell targeted advertising in a completely different environment. That applies to uh, more than one company, by the way, just in case uh, there's any doubt. But you know, yeah, purpose limitations is the purpose for you collecting the data and not expand, not using it beyond the purpose that you have got consent or you've disclosed you're collecting it for. That's that's right. About there. Yeah. That's right. I mean, you shouldn't be able to read someone's emails and sell them targeting advertising somewhere else, right? Like, and the advantage of purpose limitations is, is it is both privacy protecting, privacy enhancing for the consumer. It's also competition enhancing, right? Because it means that it it isn't just a race to collect as much first party data as you possibly can which benefits the large digital platforms, if there are purpose limitations which say you can only collect and use data for the purpose that a consumer would reasonably expect that you're collecting it for, it means that it's going to make it easier for smaller players like publishers to compete in digital advertising and and move more towards a a contextual-based model, which is, uh, I think, going to benefit both consumers and publishers uh, in the long term. Contextual. I mean, when I put this to certain parts of the market, they almost scoff at you, at me, uh, you know, essentially um, repeating what you guys say. So I blame you for me getting the scoff. But the point there is that there is a certain segment of the of the community, of the of the advertising and marketing and media community that just thinks, you know, contextual is a back to the future, old world, almost newspaper sort of approach to advertising. Why do we think contextual will really, will really start to kick in? And why do we think that this media and targeting data-based, um, data-layered, data-fed advertising is troubled. Chris, how much time do you think the data-based advertising approach that a lot of the media companies are following now, how long have they got? And this context thing, will it really, really land? I think the clock's ticking. 
and it's ticking because of a whole range of external factors. If you look at what marketers do in everything else they do outside of the advertising world, they value context, they value trust. You look at the placement in a supermarket of a product, you're not going to be want you're not going to want to be in the wrong place. And a lot of time, effort and energy is spent on context and trust outside of digital advertising. It's unfathomable to me that that won't then apply itself to digital advertising over time. You look at the news media more broadly and these privacy reforms are just one of the big icebergs that I think the news media are facing in a short period of time. You also have the cost of newsprint. You have the news media bargaining code renewals. There are Mm. a whole host of challenges facing publishing in this country. And, you know, the beauty of being a new build is you are building from a blank sheet of paper and can do things differently. But I think more broadly, there are some real challenges around the corner. Clearly, you're going to have subscription members, member or and or subscription data. You will use your audience data to at least help uh, to understand what's going on. It's not like you're not going to collect any data at all, Chris, correct? That's not an assumption I'd make, Paul. Um, wow. And, okay. You know, commercially, one of the things that we're looking at doing differently is building the business off the back of great journalism, not off the back of user data. So if you subscribe to our property, you'll give us your email address, your credit card details, and that'll be it. We won't collect anything about you. Well, Dan, what do you make of that? That's How do you do even contextual on that one? That's just on consumption then, what, what they're consuming in terms of the content rather than who they are. Very old school. Yeah. What do it's you make of that? Dissimilar. Thing, it's not dissimilar from what we do, Paul. I mean, we, we collect a little bit more insights on from some of our audience than that. But, you know, we don't. If, if someone wants to support The Guardian, we don't mandate that they give us a whole bunch of information about themselves for that purpose. So... You don't need that for brand advertising, right? You don't need, if what you are selling is the trust that your audience has in the masthead, you don't need to know their every move and where they go. If you want to go and do that kind of, you know, if you're selling widgets and all you care about is selling widgets, then a publisher is probably not the place to do that. If you want to build a brand, a publisher is a fantastic place to do that because for the Guardian's audience at least, and I'm sure Chris will argue this for, for his masthead when it launches, the trust that consumers have in that masthead is, is really where the value is. Right, and it was exactly what I thought, Chris. You know, when you say, you, you mean, if you can go to market and tell people that you're not even going to collect data on them, that goes some way to the top of the conversation around trust, I, I imagine. Yeah, and universally in everything that we do, whether it's the way we practice journalism, how we act commercially, Everything that we do and every decision we're making in the business then is is centred around what does this mean for our audience and how does it reflect on how they'll trust our master in our business. Chris talked about, um, mentioned the media bargaining code. Now, both of you were involved in that. Both of you were very successful in your deals that come out of the media bargaining code. And I think if we put a number out, maybe $200 million went to the publishers from Google and Facebook, mostly Google on this on this round. Chris said the round, or, or one of you said, you know, they're coming to a rollover period or the, the expiry in the current terms, three years, I think, maybe some. Two things. Uh, what is the likelihood of Google, particularly Facebook was a little bit uh, leaner, but Google returning with the sort of the generosity that it delivered the first time around? Is it going to be a harder fight to get the next round of dollars? And what happens when you hear Robert Thompson barking quite loudly about AI and the need to protect IP and AI in? whatever going on there. So will you try and get some sort of AI bonus coming from Google with all its um, all its fancy stuff? I guess that's the question. What, so what happens to the media bargaining code next? Um, Dan, you first. Well, look, the short answer is I don't know. But, 
you know, the policy is still in place, the code is still in place, and therefore my expectation is that the deals will be renewed. And I'd also make this point, Paul, that particularly with Google, there's a real acknowledgement of the importance of public interest journalism and a real acknowledgement of the need for Google to support that. And our relationship with Google is, I think, better than ever. I hope they would say the same thing. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that when it comes time for renewal, whenever that may be, that uh, we will proceed as, uh, as we have done. And that will allow us to continue to do really important journalism, which is good for Australia at the risk of getting carried away. The concern that we, well, we have lots of concerns around AI, but the concern that we have it from the context of the platforms or in, in, in the context of the platforms is that these large language models have been trained on our journalism, on our content. And uh, there's going to be a huge commercial benefit, which is going to flow to what it looks like just a small number of large players. And they're going to receive the commercial benefit from that. And the all the work and effort and costs that's gone into producing the content that has trained them has largely been scooped up for free. This is The Guardian then being in violent agreement with Robert Thompson at News Corp. Is this correct? Is this what I'm hearing? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if I'd use the same terms that he would use, but there are certainly areas of uh, of agreement between. I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? I mean, if you're if you're using our content and contravening our terms of service in order to train a large language model, and we're not being compensated for it, then obviously we're going to be unhappy about that. I don't think that's a yeah. big surprise, right? The issue we've got is that you know we need the large platforms to crawl our sites for the purposes of search and other instances, right? It's really difficult for us to stop these large platforms from calling our site for other purposes, such as training large language models. So this is something which we're going to have to sort out. And yes, perhaps the news media bargaining code will evolve to include some kind of consideration for all of this. But, you know, we're, we're pretty early in the piece here, so it remains to be seen. Chris, James, your take on the media bargaining code AI, I know that it's public that you've been involved in advising New Zealand on the its media bargaining code with the platforms. I don't know where that's at. It's been going for a while. But uh, your take on the media bargaining code rollovers, what is different about New Zealand to Australia and AI? So, and, and I come to the news media bargaining code outcomes, renewal outcomes as an, a very interested outsider, I would, I would yeah. say. You um, were I on think- the inside, right? Yeah, and you know, I think it's a really challenging time ahead. The first renewals are up in 11, 12 months. It's all public. People announce to the stock market when they the length yes. of their terms. And Meta, of course, have been withdrawing from those agreements in every other part of the world. The legislation, the mechanic in the legislation is that they'd have to be designated for the legislation to actually apply to them. Um, the treasurer is the, the person that puts that designation forward and I cannot see a world where Meta are walking away from news in every part of the world than creating a difference for Australia. And that leads to, you know, Rod Sims is on the record at saying these deals are worth north of, sorry, $200 million a year. That leads to a significant amount of money flowing out of, out of the coffers of publishers, which at a time that there are other challenges, I think will have some consequences. And the other thing that I'd say is the news media bargaining code was never meant to to solve journalism, never meant to solve all the issues facing journalism. It was one of nine recommendations in the Digital Platforms Inquiry report. And from the perspective of, of an emerging publisher, the, the bargaining code doesn't do anything to support innovation in new media business models. Um, it doesn't support the introduction of new voices. It's just one solution in what I think needs to be a much broader suite of solutions to level the playing field for 
for people that invest in journalism. Well, that was the underlying criticism of the code, the bargaining media bargaining code from the critics was that it was essentially a, a news corp piece of legislation was going to help was going to help news corp basically help the establishment, I should say, um, hold their own. So, you know, the Guardian sort of managed to sneak in there and do some interesting stuff and get some money, but um, oh, ultimately. There's a really long tail of publishers who also benefit from the bargaining code. So I think the the News Corp criticism is is a bit unfounded. There mm. was a really large suite of publishers that did benefit from the code and, and continue to benefit from the code. What it doesn't do is then consider new entrants to the market, doesn't consider really the situation that we're about to face where renewals don't happen. Do we then enter a phase of a 24 to 36 month process of designation and um, mm. there's a whole host of elements that i think it doesn't consider and if you look at what's happening in canada with their legislation and in new zealand with the purported legislation there other markets are building on what's happened in australia to reach what might end up being better outcomes so i think this needs to be an open topic that we continually revisit not a mm. deals were done case closed move on next AI, um, do you agree with Dan's position on, on all that? 100%. The core principles are the same. Any company that is using the content paid for and created by others to commercially benefit should be paying for that benefit. What's the trigger and the mechanism? Do you have any thoughts on how, you, how that gets recouped, Chris? I think this is the challenge. And, you know, the advent of AI reminds me to the beginning of Uber in, in this market, at least, where Uber were writing all of their own rules, be done with law, be done with the way oh, right. yeah. that any responsible company would act. And we all accept Uber as part of our everyday life now. But in, yeah. in the beginning, they were being pretty reckless. They were right <laughs> and, on the edge, or if not over the edge, right, on, on things. So it, I think the same needs to happen here. It's not incumbent on everyone else to write the rules for people that are breaking them. It's It's incumbent on the people that are entering the market and doing things differently to also comply with legislation that already exists, comply with terms of service that already exist, and propose a solution. Let's wind this up with, firstly, the plans for both of you in the next 12 months. Um, Chris, I know you're not going to give me anything, but I'm going to try. The next six to 12 months, if you can say something that will stop me sounding like a pain in the oh, ass. We'll, we will undoubtedly be launching a publishing business. Um, this side of with- Christmas. This absolutely this side of Christmas. So mm. we we have journalists that we're onboarding now. We're actively building a product. Uh, we're talking to commercial partners, and we're moving really quickly. So we will, in short space of time, be able to unveil exactly what we're doing. And you know, when we do that, it's not done either. The reality mm. of media is that you need to evolve and change. We see an opportunity. That exists in the market, but also I'm a firm believer in that you don't sit, sit still. Keep on. And, and the reality here, though, is, and I'm going to try once more, the reality is you don't need a big base, Chris. I mean, we talked about scale. You're not gunning for scale. You're not talking about big, big numbers here, are you? I'm not even asking you the numbers. I'm just saying they're not big uh, in, a, in a conventional publishing sense. You have incumbent business publishers in this market that talk about reaching north of 2 million Australians. Our target audience is not north of 2 million Australians. It mm. is the set of people that are establishing the agenda, making decisions, and they want to be informed. And so that could be, you know, that could be 20, 30, 40,000 subscribers then, but um, I know you're just going to smile at me on that. So Dan, Stinton, now you're leaving. You're going to be CEO of Health Engine, which is essentially, well, tell us what it is and really quickly why you're going. 
Look, Paul, it was a really difficult decision, to be honest. I love The Guardian. Back when I was a journalism student, I used to subscribe to The Guardian Weekly, which was their sort of weekly newspaper. It's now it's now a magazine that we do. But, you know, it was before they had a website. So I have it, it has genuinely been my favourite masthead and what I have read for decades. And so the decision to leave was a really, really difficult one. That said, you know, I've been here for five years. I came in at a time when The Guardian had just broken even. We've tripled the revenue since then. We've grown the team by, uh, you know, more than double. And it's been a really good run. And I think I I wasn't itching to to leave or anything, but I think you do have to be mindful of the fact that, you know, everything has a lifespan and um, perhaps it's time for someone new to come in with some, some fresh ideas to grow the business over the next phase. I'm very confident that The Guardian has a really strong uh, future and it will continue to grow, but I think it's just time for someone else to do it. Look, this opportunity came my way. Health Engine, you know, they're backed by Seven West Media, Telstra Ventures, um, Sequoia Capital. I think it's the only company that Sequoia has invested in in Australia. Don't quote me on that. But I, out, of the, out of the US, right? A renowned VC firm out of the that's US. That's right. That's right. And, and look, Health Engine does a lot of things, but it, you know, probably what most people would be familiar with it, it's a it's an online booking channel for for health practitioners, for doctors, dentists, cheap. Um, you know, uh, psychologists, you name it and, it, and it has a fairly significant um, telehealth uh, component or online health component as well. So, look, it's outside of the media, obviously, but I, I have known of the company and known the founders for some time because of Seven West Media's uh, investment in it where I used to work. I'm really excited to be joining it. And, um, and look, I, I think, you know, from the, the commercial side of things for me, I'm looking forward to getting back into a marketplace and digital business, which I've actually done a little bit of in the past when I when I haven't been working in media, including with my own startup some years ago. So looking forward to getting back into something which is um, which is a bit broader than that and um, turning my, um, hopefully using some of my experience in that sort of digital marketplace side of things to help grow that business too. Chris Jans, thanks for joining. Dan Stinton, we haven't heard the last from you yet. Before you go, August, we'll have some. We'll have another rant from you before you go, I'm sure. But uh, really interesting conversation. Thanks for joining. We'll talk again in coming months because I want to know what you're doing. Thanks for joining. See you guys. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 audio edition to listen for free. Listener.